Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Podcast. Today is Columbus Day, Monday, October 12, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, Abe, uh, we're closing the November issue of commentary this week, uh, and uh, material from the issue will be online probably Thursday, Friday. Um, what's special about this issue, Abe? This is commentary's 75th anniversary issue. Yes, commentary was founded. The first issue of commentary came out in November of 1945. Uh, so we are 75 years old and, uh, once that was not so extraordinary to be a publication that was 75 years old, I think now in 2020, it is pretty extraordinary to have survived and thrived for three quarters of a century while other publications have, you know, collapsed, fallen by the wayside, lost their reasons for being, lost their advertising, lost money, lost everything. And uh, here we are uh, because of uh, the passion of our readers and the support of our uh, philanthropically minded readers uh, here with you today to be talking about the politics of the moment. Uh, the issue features a, a beautiful article by Commentary's sort of longest lived contributor now, I think, or like longest lived continuous contributor, Joseph Epstein, on on his experience writing for commentary. A piece by Matt, Matthew Cottonetti on commentary's influence uh, on American foreign policy over the decades, and a conversation between me and my father, Norman Podhoritz. He was the editor for 35 years from 1960 to 1995. I, I've been the editor since 2009, and we basically talk about what it means to edit a magazine, how commentary was different from other magazines and how what what editing is how it works how it functions and so that is that's uh, that's that's what we have and, and great uh, there are great stories in there about particular um articles uh throughout the decades yeah yeah anecdotes and uh interesting asides and give you a behind the scenes look at uh at uh the the great and the not so great let's say uh anyway so uh that'll all be online along with uh some other pretty remarkable stuff in a, in a very fine issue we're very proud of, and that will be available at the end of the week. As we speak, as I'm talking to you on, uh, you know, in the corner of my screen, I see Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, I see uh, Diane Feinstein uh, ye yelling at Amy Coney Barrett uh, or, you know, talking about how wonderful uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. Uh, and we're going to get a lot of this until Amy Coney Barrett delivers her, opening statement, which um, you can read. It was released yesterday or leaked yesterday or whatever, and uh, I think we've all read it. Um, it's uh, not all that different from what she said uh, at the White House super spreader event. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the I guess the question that we face now is, uh, in the absence of some, you know, surprise that we can't, you know, fathom as yet, it looks like they're not really going to be able to lay a glove on her. Christine, what, what do you, what do you think? 
I think that's right. Um, she is, uh, at least they're not going to lay a glove on her in the way that they've tried to with past nominees, most notably with Brett Kavanaugh, where they tried to assassinate his character and, and completely impugn him with false stories. Um, and, you know, championed by your current vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, I should add, who will also, I'll be very uh, closely watching in her questioning of Barrett. This might actually turn out to be, even though we live in these extremely strange times, a more traditional uh, confirmation process in the sense that they are hopefully going to ask her about the law. They're going to ask her about her judicial philosophy. They're going to ask her, they're going to try to probe her to see what the temperament, her temperament will be on the bench. They'll probably question her about something she's written in the past. But in that sense, I hope that her personal life will be off limits. She did in her opening statement, um, once again, highlight actually the fact that both she's a woman and a mother, and she's going to be the first woman if she's confirmed to have to be uh, serving on the Supreme Court while also having young children. She praised her husband for his support. She also praised Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, so she has given an acknowledgement of the people who came before. I don't think that's going to be enough for Democrats. They're going to want to keep suggesting that this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat to hand off to her chosen successor. It's ridiculous. Um, but I think she'll be fine. And I think that despite the strangeness of the process, given the current pandemic conditions, it'll, I hope, end up being a more traditional confirmation hearing. So uh, in her uh, opening statement, Barrett, uh, will say as we're speaking, she hasn't said this yet <laughs> as we're to, as we're speaking right now. Um, so I'm weirdly talking, you're going to hear this after she said it, but I'm quoting it like she hasn't said it yet. Uh, it reads, um, Justice Scalia taught me more than just law. He was devoted to his family, resolute in his beliefs and fearless of criticism. And as I embarked on my own legal career, since she had been his clerk, I resolved to maintain that same perspective. There is a tendency in our profession to treat the practice of law as all-consuming while losing sight of everything else. But that makes for a shallow and unfulfilling life. I worked hard as a lawyer and a professor. I owed that to my clients, my students, and myself. But I never let the law I define my identity or crowd out the rest of my life. A similar principle applies to the role of courts. Courts have a vital responsibility to enforce the rule of law, which is critical to a free society, but courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. That's pretty great. <clears throat> She's got my vote. <clears throat> I mean... That is a that is a sort of a perfect encapsulation of the judicial modesty that is at the heart of the conservative perspective on the uh, runaway nature of the role of the courts serving as a essentially second legislative body. And that is great, but I mean <clears throat> the her opponents will see it merely as a smokescreen and a pretense that that conservative justices do not observe in part because liberal justices do not observe this. I think a lot of this is projection. Um, Justice Breyer said that, that, you know, objected to originalism in part because a judicial philosophy that is commensurate with the scale of the job should 
quote, em emphasize rather, quote, the purposes and consequences of law, not its text. Um, go beyond the scope of uh, what is what the statute says towards congressional intent. And also, it's just practical effect in the real world. That's what they believe a judicial philosophy should be. And they think conservatives do that too. And they just sort of cloak themselves in this originalism as, as sort of a pretext that they never actually observe on the bench. But I mean, it's observable that they do just based on how often conservative justices cross over. You know, in the, before RBG had passed, the reliable voting block was the liberal block. I, you know, that is a very important point, which is um, uh, Jonathan Tobin has a piece about the lionization of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that will be in our November issue. And uh, reading his description of her time on the court and the opinion she wrote and all of that, I was struck by how orthodox she was. And by contrast, how heterodox the supposed ideological monsters of the right often are. Um, Scalia, of course, famously a social conservative, ruled in favor of Larry Flint's right to produce obscene parody, uh, the obscene, disgusting parody of Jerry Falwell, which he said was as, a, as an act of parody, permitted by the First Amendment. Uh, Clarence Thomas is constantly coming at decisions from a perspective that you cannot summarize so conveniently. Neil Gorsuch is showing certain libertarian uh, directions in his jurisprudence. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, of course, uh, was herself very heterodox, uh, a, a reliable conservative vote on some things, a not reliable conservative vote on, say, affirmative action. But I, I Breyer, mean, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, when, when can you point to dissents or th where they, they say things that you don't really expect them to say? So actually, Kagan's a little bit more independent, but um, this is quantifiable. Uh, Cato Zilia Shapiro has done some really fantastic work on this stuff. Uh, going into the, for example, in the 2014, 2015, uh, of this, uh, the four most conservative members of the court wrote 78 dissenting and concurring opinions, as opposed to, uh, four liberals who wrote only 27. And, uh, Nina Totenberg has quantified or talked about this, how there is a real internal effort on the part of the liberal justices after Bush v. Gore to get on the same page and be a united bloc. So this is something they actually wanted to do. Um, but the 2018, 2019 term is really instructive because it demonstrated that liberals voted together 50 on 51 of the court's 67 uh, opinions while conservative did so on 37 and of the 25, four decisions, the party line decisions, conservatives won only seven of them. Gorsuch right. defected, Thomas defected, Alito mm -hmm. defected, Kavanaugh defected, Roberts, you know, defected. Right. Um, leading to a lot of 5-4 liberal victories. Yeah. So I'm not here talking about the problem over time of the liberal and conservatives clothing, right? That the David Souter, <clears throat> Anthony Kennedy, even Sandra Day O'Connor types, or you can even look at Roberts, who I think uh, votes uh, tactically and strategically for institutional reasons, but where you can say, well, you know what, They're, they've disappointed us because they they aren't like reliable conservative votes. 
where they, you know, or they basically largely have settled on a default liberal philosophy, right? That that's the that's the claim, like that's the David Souter uh, example. I'm talking about rock ribbed conservative jurists, all of whom are intellectually minded. That is, they come at the law from a from a, a scholarly historical. Uh, and a perspective in which they try very hard to harmonize their beliefs with existing constitutional theory and therefore will vote in unconventional ways politically or partisanly or ideologically because it is more important to them to be enumerating and to be fi- to be dealing with what they believe the law and precedent are as they are. And, and what you the, just don't get that from the liberals on the court. And, w- and what the role of the law is. I mean, that that's where they are consistent. Um, you know, and this is, it's just, it's sort of this example about um, it's it, that shows that uh, liberals don't quite understand what conservatism is ultimately in some sense. When, when they um, make this criticism, they, they think that um, conservative judges are activists um, and that is not at all what it's about. Well, it I is, also read yeah. I read her statement in another, in a slightly uh, broader, more civics-minded way, because it was a reminder that her view of the role of the third branch of government, the judiciary, is not to serve as a second legislature. And conservatives have long been concerned about uh, the liberal attempt to turn the court into a second legislature. And we've seen a lot of that discussion recently with this election cycle, in particular about whether the court might have to determine the results of this election if there is any dispute. And I really felt like that that was such a crucial point for her to make. It was not just about Uh, conservative versus liberal constitutional theory or philosophy. It was saying the founders of our country determined a role for this branch of government that you are nominating me to. And I respect that determination. We are not supposed to fix the mistakes of the legislature. We are not supposed to, you know, prevent the executive from doing his or her job. We have a very specifically defined role as an institution. And I like that she seemed to be making a, an, a nod to the institutional functions of the court and a reminder of those functions, because I think a lot of certainly a lot of progressives um, have abandoned that institutional function or would like to see it undermined with things like court packing or, you know, turning it into a de facto legislature. Right. Well, we'll get to the court packing stuff in detail in a minute. Um there is such a thing as conservative judicial activism. There are theories and ideas on the right, very interesting ones, uh, where people, where basically the idea is either uh, that, yeah, the Constitution should be treated to some extent as a living document and deployed in that way to uh, counter uh, liberal encroachments on individual freedom. Um uh, our friend Randy Barnett, who is a big uh, podcast listener, this is one of his key issues that um, that there there should be sort of uh, rigorous application of of of, uh, of the of the Ninth Amendment in particular um, and the Tenth Amendment, and uh, in ways that sort of go beyond what general you know ju- judicial originalists might say. And then there's sort of Adrian Vermeule and people like at the at Harvard. Uh, who who are basically like, there's no point pretending 
that the courts are anything but a political actor and therefore they need to be harnessed to be political actors. Like you're tying one hand behind your back because liberals use it as a political player and conservatives don't. And therefore you're just always on, on the losing side there. These are serious approaches to Supreme court jurisprudence and, and, and court jurisprudence altogether. They just happen not really to be the approaches of these, uh, justices that we're talking about. And that's why it's funny that they should be accused of being judicial activists. They're only judicial, they're judicial activists because they will overturn precedents that they think are, are violative of the constitution and believe that the decisions were wrongly decided. That is not activism. I mean, activism is overturning a, a congressionally passed law because you don't like what it says or because it doesn't harmonize with your, you know, with your, because you want your a own policy politics. outcome. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Penumbra. But, the anyway, of Penumbra. yeah. So you can do anything. Right. So, uh, that's where, no, your interesting theory about projection, I think is, is, is very important here that, uh, that they can't imagine that the, originalist argument is anything but disingenuous that it's all there just as a cover for just what we do what anybody does uh which again like adrian Vermeule would say they're right like you know strip off you know end the crap like stop stop you know stop uh stop bull stopping uh, bs and like acknowledge that this is all just relationships of power um, and, uh, and that, you know, and that there is a lot that you can't sort of determine from constitutional language and you should, uh, you should pursue your, your objectives. So that's where we can come to a discussion of, uh, the vice president, uh, or the former vice president and his inability to say much about court packing. But before we do that, let me talk to you guys about today's uh, sponsor ExpressVPN. Uh, so there's this uh, documentary on on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, uh, and it shows how tech insiders explain the way social media is engineered to exploit users' data for profit. They call it surveillance capitalism. Christine has written a lot about this, and look, we're all we're all happy with normal capitalism. When you you know you buy something, someone sells you something, they get a profit. You get a you get uh, the thing that they've put sweat equity into, and all of that. But you know when your data are being harvested, so tech billionaires can get even richer. Maybe that's where you should draw the line. And that's why just this weekend, actually, I put a layer of protection around my data with ExpressVPN. Every time you use the internet, big tech companies mine your data by tracking your searches, messages, and video history. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, it hides your IP address, which websites can use to personally identify you. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. You You need to be careful with what you share on social media, but ExpressVPN can make your web browsing more anonymous. It also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and prying eyes. Many VPNs slow down your internet, but not ExpressVPN. It's incredibly fast, easy to use. Just tap one button and you're protected. So if you don't like the idea of tech companies exploiting your personal information, do what I did this weekend. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary right now, and you can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary 
To protect your data, go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. And we thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. So, Noah, you and I have a, have a disagreement uh, about uh, what, what is going on with this whole uh, court packing uh, story. Uh, so I'm going to let you, and we talked about this on Friday. So I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want, we don't need to rehearse the whole history here. But uh, you think that uh, they're making a hash of this. That liberals and are making a hash of this, or that they've spun up an unnecessary issue. Uh, articulate that position with cord packing. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, this is something that bubbled up from the left um, over the course of the last couple of years. It um, accelerated and intensified after RBG's death, but it, that wasn't the source of this argument from the left. And it has become, now you've had lawmakers and senators say this is something that should be a punitive response to the uh, the confirmation of this justice, abandoning even FDR's uh, you know, pretext for expanding the court, which failed, which was that it was dysfunctional and doesn't work right anymore and it needs to work better. Nobody's even making that argument now. They're just saying explicitly Republicans need to be punished. I don't think that's effective messaging. I also don't think if the Biden administration were to adopt this, that they'd want to abandon their entire legislative agenda and sacrifice um, whatever objectives they have to what would be an all-consuming effort to blow up the Senate and blow up the Supreme Court um, that for the rest of its the rest of the Biden presidency would be dedicated to that. So I think it's an empty threat. I think it's a bluff. I think it's one that needs to be called. And I think the effort that you're seeing now on the part of lawmakers and uh, and good soldiers on the left to redefine what court packing means to mean whatever we want it to mean, in this uh, case, to mean uh, filling existing vacancies is fraudulent and, uh, and just a, 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 a tacit admission that what they know they're doing, if they were to define it accurately, would be rejected wholesale by voters, by the electorate, and by even some squeamish Democrats. Um, what you saw now over the course of this weekend is a lot of lawmakers adopting a really uh, a line that insults your intelligence, which is, you know, I'm going to quote Dick Durbin here as just one example, one of many, um, where he told Chuck Todd over the weekend that, quote, it's common, it's a common question being asked because the American people have watched the Republicans packing the court over the last three and a half years. And they brag about it. They've taken every vacancy and filled it. Um, that's not what court packing is. Court packing is not filling existing vacancies or even not filling existing vacancies. It is creating new vacancies. Everyone knows this. It's a really kind of obnoxious effort to retcon everyone into this belief. And to the extent you've seen people latch onto it, it is merely an expression of their support for the agenda. The bigger the lie, the more you know difficult it is to, to abandon it. Uh, if you know, and, and it's a display of your zealotry for the cause. And moreover, why wouldn't they think it works? Because this is what they always do. Whenever they're in a bind, a poll-tested piece of language doesn't go their way. They redefine the terms, or they redefine the word. Um, you know, we've seen this with things like uh, reproductive rights, which is abortion, and in, and earned benefits, which are entitlements. And investments, which is spending, and colorblindness, which is racist, and even during impeachment, you know they they stopped talking about impeachment and started talking about inquiries, and they stopped talking about quid pro quo and started talking about bribery and extortion. 
you know, they, they redefine the language as it's, as they need it to, as they need to navigate these issues. But all those examples are interesting because they never won the argument around any of them, no matter how much they redefine the terms and redefine the language. The ultimate argument was, was nevertheless lost or is still in, um, is still being debated. Look, the nerviness of the Republicans are packing the courts. So that's what we should be talking about. One of the reasons that it's nervy is there are very few terms in, say, American political history that have an almost specifically organic single meaning. And court packing refers to a specific idea floated and nearly passed in the wake of Franklin Roosevelt's victory in 1936, where he won 46 of the 48 states and was determined to see to it that with this overwhelming mandate that he had, that the Supreme Court, which had ruled against the constitutionality of the National Recovery Act, was not going to stand in the way of his ambitions. And so he floated the idea of expanding the number of justices on the court to 15, and he was prevented from doing so by Democrats in the Senate. And who were now? This, by the way, was remember we we now say well it's been 150 years or whatever since anyone has changed the number of justices on the court. But in 1937, it wasn't it wasn't 150 years. It was what it was you know 70 years or something like that. It wasn't it wasn't precisely within living memory, but it was close. And yet the idea was this was going to so rebalance the political weight uh, between the judiciary and the executive branch toward the executive branch that it, it, it could not be permitted. And, um, and in fact, in order to prevent it, the story goes, the Supreme Court itself privately sued for peace, essentially quietly telling the Roosevelt administration if they would stop pushing this, that they would, that, you know, the chief justice, they would stop being so aggressive in opposing his, you know, his efforts to grow the size of the federal government. So court packing only means one thing. Well, and it, what's so striking about the last uh, couple of the, the last few news cycles about this is that we know from the primary uh, during the Democratic primary, Biden on several occasions said he was opposed to that. He was opposed to court packing in that way. A lot of a lot of people are now pointing to that saying, oh, he already answered the question. He doesn't have to answer it again. But he does, because I think what it shows is that it's actually a perfect example of how bungling his responses to his progressive wing have been on the campaign trail now that he's become the nominee. And I worry about that. If he's likely to become president, he's going to be facing these challenges every week in his White House. So what all he he could have even said something very simple, answered the question by saying, we'll see. That's something that requires congressional legislation. I hope we take Congress and the Senate and then we'll, you know, that that's for the people to decide. I mean, there are a million ways he could have answered it that would would have, yes, angered his base, his progressive base, but would have been an actual respectful answer. And I think we saw a glimpse of the Joe Biden, who a lot of us have seen over the last several decades in Washington, 
when he was asked, you know, again by a reporter on Saturday, are you going to pack the court? Don't the American people have a right to know? And his response was, no, they don't. They'll find out after the election. That's the Joe Biden I remember from uh, the Senate for, for many, many decades. It's not the Joe Biden that his campaign wants you to see, though. So that was quickly backpedaled onto. But well, this, this is why you know, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, but that's why not. it was a bad news cycle for him over the course of these last couple of days. Not the answer, but the contempt and disrespect he showed for even the premise. That's what the press couldn't move on from. And they knew they couldn't move on from it. They had no choice but to, to navigate that further because it was so nakedly contemptuous toward voters. They had no, they were professionally obliged. But only when Joe Biden settled on this line, the progressive line, that court packing is actually what Republicans do all the time by filling existing vacancies. It became a brilliant navigation of this rather thorny issue. And everybody who so desperately wanted to move on from it had permission to move on from it and then proceeded to do so. Um, But it didn't answer the question. I think the contempt though is um, only offensive to the conservatives who are watching this closely. I, I, I don't know that it lands and um, gets under the skin of, of anyone else, honestly. And I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think I have to admit, I, I don't think the issue has been entirely a loser for them. I mean, um, either the threat, which I believe is empty, but um, it still sort of um, gives them this appearance of fighting. They will fight uh, uh, the, the, the naked uh, Republican power grabs. And and I think the elision um, claiming that 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 Trump is packing the court, um, I don't think that's really a loser for them either, because it, it 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 changes the argument back again, throws it throws it the issue back onto um, the, the the you know radical Trumpian approach to to uh, blowing up our democracy. Right. Well, I, I'll give you I'll give you a three. Uh, things that support i think abe's point <laughs> number one it may not be a loser for them because it turns out that the amy coney barrett nomination may not be have been a loser for them at all and this is an outgrowth uh, the the fact that this is sort of moved center stage uh is an outgrowth of the nomination uh we got figures over the weekend uh, from the, uh, I guess it's the third quarter. Uh, second, I can't remember what quarter because I can't do math. Let's say it's third quarter. But if it's second quarter, you can attack me. Um, uh, campaign uh, finance stuff. And um, in uh, South Carolina, where uh, Jamie Harrison is running uh, a, a an unlikely close race against Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, word came that Harrison in the third quarter, meaning uh, much of it or the last you know, part of it um, after Barrett's nomination, that he had raised 56 or $57 million for a race in South Carolina, where I think the largest amount of spending ever before was like $10 million. In one quarter, $57 million. This is This outdistances Better or Works fundraising in Texas which was the largest haul in American political history at the Senate level. Uh, in Iowa, Teresa Greenfield running against Joni Ernst has raised tens of millions. I think it's I, I, the number that's sticking in my head. I, I can't look it up as I'm talking right now is, you know, was 37 million in Iowa. Uh, 
oceans of money poured into Democratic coffers as a result of the outrage generated by the Barrett nomination. So it's not that I'm saying that it was penny wise and pound foolish to nominate Barrett and get this seat on the on the court. Um, but it has it, there's an interesting ambiguity developing, uh, which is that uh, if this money means that Jamie Harrison and Teresa Greenfield and others are just so awash in funds that they can overwhelm their rivals, win these seats, and help flip the Senate Democratic, that nomination will have been beneficial to Democrats. And depending on how many people Democrats take seats away from Republicans, could make it more likely that they pack the court when they have the chance. If they end up with, I I mean, this is not really likely, I don't think, but if they end up with 55 seats, uh, there's less and less reason not to try to pack the courts, particularly, and get this in your Machiavellian thinking, particularly if you say, look, this is all a sugar high, this is all anti-Trump, when 2022 rolls around, there's going to be a rebalancing. Republicans are going to have a fantastic night on election night 2022. Therefore, we better do everything we can now. Because even if we don't do everything, they're still going to swamp us. They're still going to take the House back and maybe the Senate. So you know what we better do? We better pack the court in 2021 <laughs> because they're they're going to they're gonna take it over anyway. So... That's where it may not be a loser for them or for the court packing theme. And the other thing that I would say is that Noah is discounting the pleasure that they are taking in trolling the right with the, we're not court packing, you're court packing. You know, we're not doing it, you're doing it. And then Republicans say, what are you talking about? We're just vacancies are being filled including the supreme court vacancy it's like oh yeah well you're just taking over the judiciary that that's not right that's court packing you're court packing and you're like no it's not court pack court packing referred to 1937 then it like i just did five minutes ago and then they're like i don't know you seem like you're court packing to me right it's like pure political gaslighting and this is what they think trump has been doing to them for four years and it drives them crazy and they are enjoying the hell out of this. They are enjoying the hell. Out. Oh, the shoes on the other foot, is it? You call we, you know, we called all this stuff fake news, all this Republican stuff about, you know, this and that and the other thing. And then you take the term fake news and you run with it. You take it away from us. How about this? We're going to take court packing away from you. <laughs> so yeah. that's uh, where. Okay, Noah's. Well, Noah's yeah, I- I like just, just want to say that Noah's so squinting. <laughs> Noah's squinting and making. She, Noah's like Kamala. You can't see him because we're under, Noah's like Kamala Harris during the debate. Okay, without yeah, the smiling, so. he's just squinting at me and making and sort of like looking sour and like he just sucked on a lemon. Because no one who is up uh, in twenty twenty is making the arguments you're making. The only people who are making these arguments are safe. Steve Look, Bullock. Yeah. Steve Bullock made it in a debate with with Danes in Montana this weekend. 
Okay, well, I have to the, see the that Democratic nominee for Senate. Then he bucks a trend because Sarah Gideon won't talk about it. In fact, she's on the defensive. John Hickenlooper won't talk about it. In fact, when he did talk about it, it was very embarrassing, and he did his best to evade the issue. Teresa Greenfield, who's challenging um, Joni Ernst in Iowa, used to oppose court packing but now can't and has been defending herself in a pretty bad news cycle over the course of the last 48 hours. The ACB nomination and court packing are distinct issues, one of which absolutely benefits incumbent Republicans and battle Republicans. It's all they're talking about now. It's all they want to talk about because every other issue redounds negatively to them. Anything that's about Trump is a problem for them. Finally, they get a chance to talk about a Democratic objective, one that Democrats don't even really support. They didn't, they're didn't. they tentative in their support for it. It's only coming from the left. It's coming from Slate. It's coming from Maisie Hirono. And they don't actually want to adopt it, so they have to be ambiguous about it. And that ambiguity is reflecting poorly on them. I think if this was a, a net winner for Democrats, you would see Republicans be a little bit more, approach the issue more gingerly. They have made it the centerpiece of their reelection efforts. Uh, okay. But we're talking about two different, we're now at two different levels. You're saying this is bad for Democrats running, you know, Senate races. But I, mean, that's I don't know not... if it's going to overturn the dynamic of this race. I'd be right. surprised if it does. But it, it quite clearly, based on the behavior of the candidates in these in these swing state races, it's not benefiting one side more than the other, just based on their own behaviors. It's the only thing they can, I think Noah's right, that it's the one thing they can talk about that isn't Trump. I mean, right. really, it, that that's a hugely important thing for uh, these people in these Senate races. Okay, but I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the commentariat and the national race between Biden and Trump and the Biden surrogates who went on TV this weekend to talk about it. Maybe they're putting these people in a bad position. Maybe they're not. I am saying that when I read Josh Marshall of Talking Points Memo, when I read a lot of these things, what I'm seeing is I am loving this. I am shoving this down Ted Cruz's throat. I am shoving this down Noah Rothman's throat. He's all earnest and talking about how you're, you know, and uh, the commentary magazine podcast, all earnest about talking about what court packing really is. You know what? Screw them. Screw all of them. We got our talk. We're sticking to it. We're really enjoying it. And it is the fact that both parties play semantic games and poll test messages I mean, my favorite one of all time is the death tax, right? Which is, which was the conversion of inheritance tax polls favorably for the inheritance tax. Death tax polls badly for the death tax. And so uh, Republicans basically, you would never hear Republicans use the term inheritance tax. You haven't heard them use it in 30 years because they settled on, on death tax. So the, the semantic recasting of things in order to, you know, get people to like the sound of them is a bipartisan has a strong bipartisan vintage. And I, I just think it's funny that they think it's funny. Uh, And uh, look, the problem for Biden is that there is so little to hook on him and, and, and they've been trying to hook him with the same difficult questions now for, you know, a couple of months if they if they really want to, right? What you said this about fracking? What about fracking? What about the Green New Deal? What about raising taxes? What about this? What about that? And he kind of slips out. So now they have a new one. This is a new one, and he's not answering it satisfactorily. So yeah, when he has town halls this week, and he'll have one, I guess, on ABC in place of the debate on Thursday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that's the first thing he's going to be asked. 
one assumes. So in that sense, it's not helpful because they kind of, they incepted, an issue has been incepted against him that he has to deal with, whereas he has managed to kind of swat away the other issues with this weird, you know, uh, blindness on the part of, uh, of his interlocutors who know enough to ask the question, but don't either know enough or care enough or, or, or are worried enough about his prospects that they don't want to follow up. Or you know, make him answer for his. But but this one is kind of easy because it's so theoretical. I think they can hit it. They can hit him hard on it because it may happen. It may not happen. And who really cares anyway? Yeah, I think that that's that's a really important point. That Joe Biden was frog marched into this. He didn't want this news cycle. He's been forced into it, which gives a lot of ammunition to everybody who's been arguing unsuccessfully, probably but nevertheless arguing that he is an empty vessel for the progressive left. That's exactly what happened in this case. Now, there's some really kind of uh, snarky reporters who have said, you know, well, Donald Trump says this too. Donald Trump says Republicans should be packing the court too, but Donald Trump says everything. And when he says, you know, Republicans should eliminate the filibuster, for example, Republicans have a proven track record of ignoring him. This is not coming from the top down. It is coming from the bottom up. And Joe Biden has been receptive to it. And those are distinctions that, cannot be elided because they're so profoundly different when measuring the, uh, the the power, potency, and efficacy of a political movement. And just what is coming from below is a much more serious threat. And just, just a little public service announcement, which I'm going to make uh, several times between now and the election. He is the most liberal Democrat ever to run. Like his, This ticket is the most liberal Democratic ticket we have ever seen. So that's just everyone's public service announcement because we forget right. that because of Trump's behavior, which is so outside the mainstream. But this is an extremely liberal platform. But he doesn't read. This is why he was the, this is why from 2019 to now, he has been, was the front runner except for three weeks and was beating Trump for three, you know, from the beginning of 2019 until the present. He doesn't read like a liberal. He doesn't read like a left winger. He reads like he's more conservative. And he doesn't read like he's more conservative than Barack Obama. And if the issue ever really came up, where he really had to defend himself on the grounds that he wasn't a liberal, he could affirmatively seize on the things that he had to run away from during his bid for the nomination, like being hard on crime, like having having been the key sponsor of the crime bill in 1994, like having created the Office of National Drug Control Policy in a you know in in an omnibus piece of legislation in 1988. Uh, like his opposition to busing. I don't even care. That's the funny part is that he has in his quiver the ability or the capacity in the last week, if things go wrong, to say, you know, I don't know what they're saying about me. I'm the guy who, you know, like helped create the conditions under which crime in this country dropped from dropped 80%. So, you know, and he's never been able to say that because the party went decarceration and, you know, and the idea that, you know, it's terrible that, that anybody has ever goes to jail anymore. Um, um, but but you're right that programmatically, not, there's nothing, never been anything like this, the, the platform, um, if you assume that the platform means anything. I think if the court packing issue doesn't go away and if it, it becomes a genuine irritant to Biden... Um, I think we have to sort of reassess the vice presidential debate a little bit because Mike Pence was very effective 
in prosecuting this court packing um, elision um, and in pointing out very effectively that uh, Kamala Harris would not give a straight answer on it. Yeah, but who cares what Kamala Harris? That's the problem with the vice presidential debate. First of all, aside from the fact that everybody, you know, that uh, the the polling seems to have registered that people thought on balance that she won. I know. What she says doesn't hold, you know, you could never say, aha, you see, she did really badly on that and he did well, right? Because he's not, she's not going to be the president. Until February, but 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 this issue <laughs> or March when they will use <laughs> right. when they will invoke the twenty fifth well, amendment and cool him out get, of office. She'll get to show her hand this week in these hearings if she does show her hand. And I think you know to speak to something Noah has said about her that I think is correct. And and certainly judging by her uh, Democratic primary performance, she could really bungle it. She certainly bungled it during the Kavanaugh hearings, and she could easily kind of with uh, with her sort of the hubris that she tends to display when she's in her senator questioning someone role. She could say something that does, I think, Abe's right, that could extend this news cycle a little bit more and not not, not to her benefit. Who was Look, the most effective a- questioner during the Kavanaugh hearings on the Democratic side? Amy Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar, because right. she approached it with coolly and dispassionately and ended up making him appear the, the hot person in the exchange. Um, I don't think Kamala Harris is capable of that. She just chews the scenery wherever she goes. Well, you know... This is a Rorschach test thing because you think she bungled it and liberals loved her. No, but she bungled it retrospectively. She alleged, she, she, she contended that uh, there was this nefarious meeting at this law firm, which ended up being a viral clip. And it actually helped launch her campaign because it was such a great moment. And then it went absolutely nowhere. Okay. But that doesn't mean she bungled it. I'm sorry. And this is where I think. We have to own up to the fact. We don't have to own up. We don't own it. But I mean, um, the Donald Trump's domination of politics over the last three and a half years has changed the way we have to look and evaluate politicians and their performance because they are not properly evaluable. If that's a word, evaluatable, value. I don't even know what the what the that you cannot evaluate them properly uh, by going with the what they said didn't amount to anything, or they said this, but then there were a lot of attacks on it, and then you know they dropped it or something like that, because uh, what Trump says and does and how he behaves politically and all this bears no connection to any observable, you know, uh, reality or connection to truth. He is a post-truth person. He argues what he wants to argue, and then he'll argue the opposite if it helps him three days later. Um, And he is the leading figure in American politics and has been for the last four years. And we want to evaluate candidates on the basis of older forms, we do because, like you know, you should be able to say what you mean and defend what you say, and you know, make an accounting of what of your charges, and you know, be responsible if you make irresponsible charges for being irresponsible. And I just don't know how you can say anymore that uh, politicians uh, are that it is it, it is even fair to judge politicians on on these on these bases. 
when the president of the United States lives entirely outside the bounds of them. I just think there's a paucity of evidence to suggest that anybody other than Donald Trump has used these tactics effectively. And everyone else has tried. I don't know that he's... By the way, if he loses on November 3rd, he will not have used these tactics effectively. This will be... this The cumulative effect of all this will be that he drove everybody crazy, people didn't like him, and they drove him from office. So it, the jury is out on whether or not he even used them effectively. But... It has been the dominating feature of our political life. And it will have been bequeathed to us going forward. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you can never go back. Right. So back to our drinking game, the Trump permission structure means that Joe Biden can say whatever he wants to about court packing and about you know what he's going to do or not going to do. And he can say, I'll tell you after the election, and he can say this and he can say that. And none of it w- matters because anybody who likes him or, you know, is in the meat or something like that can say, well, Trump has always done worse. Trump did this. Trump said this one was a murderer. He called Kamala Harris a monster and a communist. So why can't she say whatever the hell she wants to say about because him? Because that undermines his the message that he's been running on, and I, I agree, I don't think it really is going to hold, and I don't know how many people are actually going to hold him to account for this message. But remember, the reason he won the primary, the reason he's ahead right now, is that he has said, I'm going to take us back to normal. Whatever normal is after the pandemic, we're going to take care of the pandemic and get back to normal. We're going to get rid of Donald Trump and get back to normal. Everything will be as it was. We're going to restore normality and calm and all these. This was this was his pitch. It was his pitch during the primary, and he succeeded. It's his pitch now, and he's way ahead. So I think, I mean, perhaps other Democrats can go the way of the of the Trump, but I don't know that Biden's going to be able to manage that um, because that'll come back to haunt him, uh, if not in midterm elections for d- down ballot. But you're, you're in, talking about from now till the in, into the future. But yeah. For, I'm, I'm just talking yeah. about the next three weeks. I'm not talking oh, about okay. Well, in I mean, terms of what Abe's talking about in terms of the change in the tenor of American politics. Right. I, well, I, mean, I, I I don't know. I mean, you know, there's well, a lot. Well, things shouldn't benefit or hurt Joe Biden anyway, because as Christine said, it's it's not within his realm of government. I mean, I guess that's kind of a, a naive point to think that separation of powers matters to voters on this level. It probably doesn't. But still, it's if this matters at all, it'll matter for, for Senate Republicans who are in a really tough spot. Um. Biden, the only thing that Biden in the last couple of days has reversed himself on in ter- and, and, and basically said that he, he spoke wrongly was on this thing where he said the only way we're going to lose this election is if they steal it is through their chicanery, right? Which is an eerie parallel to, you know, to, to Trumpian language. And it was interesting because he actually went back and said, that's not what he meant. He meant he, you know, they're they're going to try to do whatever they can to disrupt the 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 proper flow of the election. They're trying to block poll watchers. They're trying to block, uh, you know, early voting and uh, drop off boxes and this and that and the other thing. And so they're going to do what they can. But I will abide by the results of the election, whoever wins and loses and all that. I thought that was striking because it speaks to what you said, Christine, which is he does not want to be Trump. He still wants to be the anti-Trump. And I just don't know that the court packing stuff is the, you know, that said, he's not going to be held to a pre-Trump standard by 
the people who evaluate American politics from now until the election. He may be held to a pre-Trump standard after the election. But, you know, when I read Ruth Marcus, the, the, the op-ed writer in the Washington Post who writes on, you know, justice issues and the law, and she says the following, uh, if, okay, the future of the court, now that Republicans are po- poised to cement a six-justice conservative majority, is a hugely important topic. Republicans stole one seat when they refused to let Barack Obama fill a vacancy, Now they are poised to steal another rushing through President Trump's nominee with Election Day less than a month away. So apparently rushing through a nominee is stealing. It's not not even rushing in the historical context. But even if you accept that it's rushing, literally the sentence deconstructs itself because if you're rushing, that means you're allowed to do it. You're just doing it in a hurry. And maybe you're doing it in too much of a hurry, you know, in some inchoate sense. But um, so that's what I mean. The argument is so incoherent on its face that if you adopt it, you're a real soldier. Uh, you you have demonstrated your commitment to the cause by sacrificing all pretense towards objectivity or even uh, intellectual honesty. Everybody in this country is being enlisted as a soldier in this battle, which is there is nothing more important. This is the nothing more important in American history than ending this presidency on November 3rd. And anything and everything that can be deployed to make that happen is legitimate and not only legitimate but praiseworthy so if you got to back the court packing argument you back the court packing argument you don't add to the troubles you don't publish articles that are going to be negative toward biden and everything like that this is an all hands on deck crisis according to the liberals and the left and any anything that retards that is an act of treason against the United States. That is what they think. I mean, do we have any, that is what they think. The only way you can criticize Biden on the court packing stuff is the answer is unsatisfactory. Therefore, he's maybe giving Republicans some ammunition. So maybe there's a better argument that he could make. Not that he shouldn't make it because it's bad. Not that it's bad policy. Not that, but like, Maybe he's given them a little bit of an opening so he should stop it, right? Not, But I am telling you, I'm talking to people, I'm reading every day, I'm reading every hour, and uh, this idea, this is the most important election in American history, this is the end of America if Trump wins again. The, 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 the corollary to that is anything that you do that doesn't either help the Biden cause or harm the Trump cause is an act of treason against the country and the destruction of your children's future. That is a pretty potent force in this election. And ordinarily you would think that it would create a counterforce, right? That's the, if Trump wins, the idea will be, man, they overplayed their hand. They went too far. They said everybody who supports Trump is a racist and a fascist and a monster. So no one could tell pollsters the truth and tens of millions of people voted for Trump that no one expected. And then he's going to win. But absent that, okay, boy, but you, it, yeah. It, 
in a weird way, it's the it's they have become the thing that they claim to loathe because that's exactly the line of reasoning and the kind of blowing up of norms that Trump did when he ran in 2016. You were either with him or you were his enemy. There was no neutrality allowed, and we saw that we we've all lived through this as conservatives. Um, you know, friendships broken up. You know, people called traitors. People called many many. Uh, worse things than that, because if you didn't get on the Trump train 100%, you were suspect. And there's a sense in which that is exactly what a large part of the left has become with regard, you know, to responding to Trump. And it's sad. It makes me sad because, as we've mentioned before, the way politics has infected so much of our cultural life. I was so heartened to see that that couple of paragraphs in Amy Coney Barrett's statement where she was like, life is something you live uh, as well as you do. You know, you do a job and you have something, things you care about, but you also have a life and your family and your friendships and those things, you can't allow those things to become infected all the time with this sort of thing. That's where we are. It's a very poisonous point in our political culture because it's infected so much of our, the rest of our lives. Um, but I, I really do hear that, that you're all in or you're an enemy kind of rhetoric. And I, and I worry about that. I actually, I, I would love to hear more liberals saying, you know, we really need to be concerned. Where, what happened to all this governance and norms and stuff? What, where did those go? I mean, <laughs> I've been really kind of, I mean, not emotional because I'm just devoid of passion these days, but um, you are I, never kind of devoid a, of passion. This is a, this is a, <laughs> you're just a roiling pit of passion. That's me, a slow boil. Um, but I've been very frustrated by this effort to redefine the language over the course of this week. And my favorite, the favorite pushback I got from this was somebody who's like, oh, you're just arguing semantics. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's literally all we're talking about is about the definition of words, which is literally semantics. This is the only time you can actually use the word literally, literally. It's literally about semantics. That is literally true, what you just said. <laughs> So, and literally, we have come to the end of this podcast. We'll we'll reconvene tomorrow for Noah, Abe, and Christina. I'm John Pudhoritz. Literally, keep the candle burning.